I was 20 years old, right in the middle of my college career when I got an unbelievable job offer. It was that kind of job offer where you go in there and your boss asks you to name your salary. I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience, but uh, I haven't ever had that since. Uh, but he walked in and, and, and I said at that time, it was, I think minimum wage was about $6 an hour. And so I, I thought I shot high. I said, how about $12 an hour? He said, sure. I was like, ah, oh, I got to negotiate better. I could have gone way higher. And so I worked this job for 40 hours a week, making $12 an hour, and then most weeks worked 15 and 20 hours of overtime, so that was $18 an hour. I mean, it was a very sweet gig for a 20-year-old. I mean, I was, I was making more money than I knew what to do with. And, uh, and because I had all that money coming in, I just learned to spend it. And I was dating a girl who I was trying to impress, and uh, I, by the way, we broke up at the end of that summer, so that was really, you know, fruitless. But, but at that period, I started spending more and more on my credit card. And this was back in the era before online billing. And so my credit card bill would go to my parents' house in Las Vegas, and then they would mail it to me in Phoenix. And one day, my mom opened my credit card bill just to see when the, when the bill was due, and she saw how much I owed. And she called me, and she's like, um, son, do you need some help with money? I'm like, mom, don't look at my stuff, you know? And it was like she walked in on me changing or something, you know? And it was just... It was just really weird, and, and, uh, and at that point, I was still paying off my bill every month, uh, but pretty soon after, I started to move into credit card debt, and some of you have heard that story in another sermon about how when my wife and I got married, I was $10,000 in credit card debt, and, and what happened was over that period of about four years, maybe four or five years, um, I couldn't tell my parents about it. See, my parents had just killed it when it came to managing money. They never had a lot of money. My dad was a pastor of a small church, and so we never had a whole lot to spend. But what they had, they managed really, really well. And here I was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into credit card debt. And I felt this profound sense of shame. I came from this family who did this really, really well. And here I am failing miserably. And I felt like I couldn't tell them about it because I was a failure. I felt like if they knew where I was and what I had done, then, then they would just reject me. See, that is the essence of shame. And almost all of us have felt that feeling where because of what we've done or not done, we feel this profound sense of unworthiness. And it drives a wedge in between us and those we love. Shame has this powerful impact in our lives. And so this morning, I just want to ask you a question. Where do you feel shame today? Where do you feel this profound sense of unworthiness because of what you've done? And where is that shame holding you back? What, what relationship is being damaged, is being torn apart because of the shame that you feel within you? You see, all throughout this series, we've been talking about these things that either can lead us to a greater life with God or these things that can drive a wedge in our life with God. And today we're talking about shame. Now, you notice that we didn't advertise that we were talking about shame today. Because I think more of you would have said you were on fall break, maybe when you weren't. 
But I think it's really important as we begin today to talk about what we mean by this word, because while I think a lot of us know that feeling, I got that sense in the room just now that a lot of you have been where I've been or you are there right now. I want us to be clear on what shame means. And I'm going to use a definition that comes from the leading shame researcher in the country. Her name is Brene Brown. She's written several best-selling books and, and Brown defines shame this way. She said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, that definition is not a Bible verse. And while I believe there is truth within it, part of the reason that I believe that shame lies to us is that it tells us a partial truth. You see, the truth is that each of us, all of you and me, we are flawed. We're all flawed, deeply flawed and broken. That's part of the human experience. And we see the power of those flaws and that brokenness and what they can lead to. And we saw it most powerfully in my hometown this week. We saw it play out in Las Vegas. We're still trying to understand why this man did what he did. And there's this this powerful sense in our country that we've got to figure out why he did what he did so that we can come to terms with it better. I know all I need to know that he's as broken and flawed as I am. And he's no worse than I am. Yeah, he carried out that action and, and maybe my worst day is not as bad as his. But the brokenness within him is the same brokenness that's within me. But the problem with Brene Brown's definition of shame is that for a follower of Christ, we are flawed, but what we just celebrated in these empty cups states that we are not unworthy of love and belonging, but we are profoundly worthy. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross announces our worthiness, which is why shame lies to us. Because it tells us that because we're flawed, we're unworthy. Now, one of the other things I want to do before we jump into the text today is I want to make a very clear distinction between shame and guilt. Because shame and guilt are different things. One is good and one is bad. See, guilt has to do with the things that we've done. When you do something wrong, you feel this sense of guilt, and that's good because it's this awareness you have that you shouldn't do that again, and you should feel some sense of conviction for the wrong that you've done. See, guilt says, I did something bad, and that's a good thing. People who can't feel guilt are dangerous people because they can't recognize the wrongness of what they've done. Shame, on the other hand, is not about what we've done. Shame is about who we are. And when you feel shame, the voice in your head is not saying, I did something bad. The voice in your head says, I am bad. And therefore, I am unworthy of love and belonging. See, guilt convicts us. Shame condemns us. When you feel guilty, you can take account for what you've done and mend a relationship. 
when you feel shame, it will drive you away from that other person because you feel unworthy of the love they give you and belonging with them. So this morning, the central idea that I want you to think about today is this. It's that shame lies to us, driving us away from life with God. Shame lies to us, and it drives us away from life with God. And one of the things you may have noticed about these themes that we've been working through in this series, things like anger and doubt and grief and anxiety and fear, is that all of these things are things that can either drive us to God or drive us away from God. We can move towards God in light of them, or they can convince us that we need to run from God because God's not one to be trusted. And each one of these provides an opportunity for us either to experience a thriving life with God or to see that thriving life die. So this morning, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in a couple different passages of Scripture. The first place I want you to turn is the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now you notice that this is not in the Psalms. And while we are going to look at a psalm today, I want to give you the context of that psalm. Sometimes in the psalms, we don't know why they were written or even who they were written by. But today, the psalm we're going to look at, Psalm 51, is one in whom we know the writer and we know the context. As you're turning there, I wanted to let you know that in a couple weeks, we're going to start a new series that I'm incredibly excited about. The series is called Becoming Courageous, The Life of Joshua. Joshua is my favorite man outside of Jesus in the whole Bible. I relate to him the most, and God has been using his story in my life for the last nine years in really profound ways. And so this is a series that I wanted to do ever since I moved to Prescott, and so I'm really excited. We're going to start it on October 22nd once everybody's back from fall break, and uh, I'm really pumped about it. So please put that on your calendars. It'll be our series that takes us up until the holidays, which is a little bit crazy that we're already there, but don't worry, you still have time to shop. So, so if you have 2 Samuel 11 open, I just want to summarize the story of what happens here because I can't, I can't take all the time I need to read it today. So a man named David is king of Israel. He's king of this united kingdom, all 12 tribes. And in in the spring, in that era, kings went off to fight wars, except David stayed home. He abdicated his job. That was his first mistake. Then because he was bored, he went out on his roof one night and he noticed a, a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And he was attracted to her. And so he abused his role as the king to bring her into his home and she became pregnant. And then he had to, to figure out what to do with this problem. And so he called her husband Uriah back from the battle. But Uriah had more character in that moment than David did. And he wouldn't go back to his wife to carry out David's plan for the baby to be seen as Uriah. Uriah stayed with the other servants. So David went to plan B. If we can't lie about this, let's kill him. And so he sent Uriah into the battle and he told his generals that when the fighting got the worst to pull the rest of the army back and leave Uriah exposed. And so Uriah died. A few months later, after his wife had mourned enough for common tradition and practice, he brought her into his home to carry the baby. So you have this man who is the king of Israel who commits adultery and then commits murder. And if you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, those are both on there. Pretty big deal. Most of us, when we say I'm a pretty good person, we go, hey, I've never cheated on my wife or murdered anybody. Well, David did. And so in 2 Samuel 11, we see this all playing out, and there's no sign of any guilt or shame in David's heart. He just goes through the motions with this stuff. 
And then 2 Samuel 12 starts, and God sends a man named Nathan, who is a prophet, to go speak to David. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so Nathan came to David and said to David, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. and like It was like a daughter to him. This is more like a dog or a cat than it was a sheep. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who came to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Let's be clear. He wasn't saying, you're the man. (laughs) He was saying, no, no, you are that man. You didn't steal somebody's lamb. It was a pet. He stole somebody's wife. And then because he couldn't be found out, you murdered him. And so David came face to face with his sin. If you have a copy of the handout this morning, I want to share with you some things I've learned about shame. And the first thing I've learned is that facing our sin can initially bring a feeling of shame. Facing our sin can initially bring a feeling of shame. See, the first time we face the wrong that we've done, our initial reaction may be a feeling of, oh my gosh, I am so broken and flawed. How could anyone ever love me or want to be near me? That's a pretty common initial feeling. You see, David had been avoiding the sin for months. And finally, Nathan came and surprised him and brought it to his attention. See, for many of us, what happens is that shame comes when we face our sin for the first time, and it sends us running from God's presence. The last place we want to be is near God. And this is not a new feeling. In the garden, this is what happened with Adam and Eve. They chose to disobey God's one command. They sinned, and they wanted to be nowhere near God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, this is what it says when God speaks to Adam about where he is. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, this is, this is our story. For you and for me, when we initially face our sin, many of us go, God, I, I was afraid of you because I was exposed, and so I hid myself and I ran from you. I got as far away from you as humanly possible. Shame leads us to hide from God. And many of us, the reason that we're not belonging in life with God the way that we'd like to is that we feel this sense of shame which says, I am unworthy of God's love. I'm unworthy of being in his presence. And so I'm going to make things worse by getting farther away from him. Many of us, after a season of of sin and shame, go, where is God and why is he so far away from me? Well, the truth is God has not moved. 
We've simply run from his presence because we feel unworthy. One of the books that's helped me wrestle through the, the voice of shame in my own life was written by a man who's now since passed away. His name is Brennan Manning. And he was a Catholic priest. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in his book, he, he made this statement which has helped me identify the voice of shame in my life. He said this, If Jesus appeared at your dining room table with knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton hidden in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your present discipleship with the hidden agenda, the mixed motives, the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would feel what? Shame. We all fill that blank in with different words. Some of us would say unworthy. Some of us would say terrified. Some of us would say ashamed. Some of us would say scared. I doubt any of us would say happy, pumped, excited, fired up. See, when we initially face our sin, one of the first feelings we often feel is shame. And it's, it's one thing for us to feel that in the moment. It's another thing for that to become a pervasive sense in our lives. Because what that shame will do is it will lie to us. And it will drive us further and further from the life with God that we deeply want. So with that context being set, I'd, I'd encourage you to, to turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. Because after Nathan comes to David, and he shares this with him, David is broken. He's undone. He's messed up. And he writes Psalm 51 in response to coming face to face with his own sin. And beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The second thing we learn about shame is that God's character is the source of our hope for forgiveness. God's character is the source of our hope for forgiveness. See, our hope is not in our goodness or in our worthiness. Because often when we're feeling ashamed, we don't feel good at all, and we for sure don't feel worthy. No, our hope that we can be forgiven after facing our sin and feeling shame, our hope is in the character of God. And in this passage, David identifies that character of God according to two phrases. He defines God's character as steadfast love and abundant mercy. He said, God, have mercy on me according to, because of, in light of your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. Now, last week and in previous weeks, we've discussed this phrase, steadfast love, that it's a Hebrew word that means hesed. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which means God's love because of a covenant promise or bond. The love that God promises to give to us because of the promise he made to us because of his character. But that other phrase there, abundant mercy, is interesting to me. 
It comes from the Hebrew phrase rahem, which means womb love. It's the love a mother has for the child she's carrying in her womb. It's the mercy that she has for the child she's carrying. And if you've ever been around someone who's been pregnant, you know that a mother bearing a child has abundant reason to be merciful to the child. The child is making them constantly uncomfortable. The child is making the mother lose sleep. The child is making the mother's body change in ways that she's going to have to work for a long time to undo. The, the baby is, is leading her to change her diet and her activity. There is not a moment when the mother is unaware that she's carrying the child. And so the mother has a need to extend abundant mercy to the child. And the thing is, is that we're the child. There is not a moment or a day that passes by that we do not give God a reason to extend mercy to us. You and I haven't had a day where we haven't needed the mercy of God. And if you think you have, just elbow the person next to you and ask them and they'll probably tell you differently. See, it's not that God is obligated to love us or show mercy to us. It's because God is, his character is steadfast love and abundant mercy. And we are his children. We are his creation. Therefore, he extends that love and mercy to us. And so when we approach him for forgiveness, our hope is not that we're a good person who's deserving of forgiveness. Our hope is in God's character. The reason we can celebrate is that shame is powerful, but God's character is greater. And so if you're here today and you feel a sense of shame, don't put your hope in your ability to one day overcome the sin that causes that shame. Put your hope in God's character, which is greater than your sin and your shame. David continues in verse 3. He says, God, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's not denying his sin. He's not excusing it. He knows that he has every reason to be condemned. The third thing we learn about shame is that confession and genuine repentance lead us into healing and freedom. Confession and genuine repentance lead us into healing and freedom. See, this is the secret to David's life with God. If you want to understand how David does life with God, then pay attention to his words here. Because throughout the scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, David is referred to by this phrase. He's a man after God's heart. Now, on, on first blush, you would go, how is it that an adulterer and a murderer is someone after God's heart? That doesn't make sense to me. How could someone who's done such things be a man after God's heart? Well, it can't be because of his moral accomplishments or his character, because those have both been shattered. It has to be because of how he responded. David says later on in the passage, he says that, God, the sacrifices that you honor are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise those things. 
David isn't a man after God's heart because he's a better man than any of us. He's a man after God's own heart because he confesses and repents when he has broken God's laws. And this is why confession is so powerful. Because it sets us free. In John 8, 32, Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when we're living in denial of the sin that we've done, if we're living in avoidance of the shame that it's brought, we're never going to enter into healing and freedom because we can't be healed of the thing that we won't own. We can't be set free in the place we can't admit that we're in bondage. And that's why many of us, things only get worse as we continue to conceal the sin. One person said it this way, the consequences of concealment are far worse than the consequences of confession. See, David tried to conceal his sin, and it got worse. It led from adultery to murder. And I don't think that you're headed to that direction. I sure hope not with your sin and your shame. But the longer you conceal it, the greater the consequences are going to come. And yet, when we admit our sin, when we confess, God does not remove the consequences. Joel Klass said it this way, the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable. (laughs) So let's be real here. If there is sin and there is shame, then when confession comes, it will not be a yellow brick road for the rest of your life. God may forgive you, but in this world, there will still be consequences. This child that Bathsheba was bearing... That child died. David, who longed for peace, God later says to him in 2 Samuel 12, there will not be peace as long as you were king. There will always be war because you did not go to war. See, you have to understand that God is loving, but he's not going to remove the consequences. But he will bring healing and freedom in your heart from the power of sin and shame. That kind of healing only comes through confession. And God's grace and mercy is there, but you can't experience it until you move forward with confession and repentance. David's final words that we're going to look at begin in verse 7. He says to God, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, O God, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The fourth thing we learn about shame is that God honors honest prayers. God honors honest prayers. See, David prays a pretty honest prayer forthright prayer before God. He doesn't excuse his sin and he's upfront about it. He asks God to, to hide his face from his sins. He calls out his iniquities and yet he desires something from God. And so he asks, he says, I, I want a new heart. I want a clean heart. I want a fresh start. And it's a reminder that we see later in the life of Jesus that the kind of prayers that God wants are often very different than the ones you hear around some Christians. In the book of Luke, this is what we read. Jesus is telling a story. He says, there was a Pharisee who was standing by himself and he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. But there was a tax collector standing far off who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This man went to his home justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. Sorry, exalted. He might be exhausted too, I don't know. At the end of the day, here's the thing. I think we really overcomplicate prayer. Most people I know who are, are not people who've been Christians for 50 years, the thing they're most terrified of is praying in public. I mean, the most terrifying thing I could do right now for many of you would be walk up to you, hand you a microphone, and ask you to pray. Because you feel like you're doing it wrong. You don't know how. And we see here in David's life and we see here in the life of this tax collector that God doesn't want you to use all the right words. He wants you to be honest. And when you pray an honest prayer, God moves in response to that honest prayer. So this morning, some of you need to have an honest prayer moment with God. Not having all the right answers, not saying all the right things, but being honest with him about the shame that has been beating you up and winning again and again and asking him like David did to forgive your sin and to create in you a clean heart. This morning before we go, I have some next steps that I want to share with you to help you overcome shame. And the first one is I want to challenge you to inventory your heart for unrepentant sin and blind spots. Inventory your heart for unrepentant sins and blind spots. You see, it's hard to imagine for us that adultery and murder could be something that was a blind spot that David didn't see. But before we judge him for the sins in his life that he didn't see, we need to face the fact that we have blind spots too. In the same way that when you drive, you have to turn over your shoulder and look and make sure there's not a car in your blind spot. We need to look in our own hearts and say, God, is there something there that I have been unwilling to see and deal with that offends you? You see, if we're really honest and open-eyed about our sin, then all of us in this room would argue that we're the biggest sinner in this room. And if you don't think you're the biggest sinner in this room, look in your blind spot. If you think you're better than the man who killed those people in Las Vegas, then look in your blind spot. You may not have committed murder with a gun, but you've committed murder in your heart. And according to the words of Jesus, those are the exact same thing. This is why I think we have to make sure we never domesticate Jesus. Because if Jesus stops messing you up and offending you, you're no longer following Jesus. Number two, I want to challenge you to ask God for friends like Nathan. Ask God for friends like Nathan. We all need people in our life who point out the thing that we need to see but are unwilling to look at. This is why we encourage you every week to get involved in a community group, to spend time in a circle with people, talking through this stuff and sharing your life so that people have the opportunity to speak into your life like Nathan spoke into David's. 
because we will never become the people that God created us to be on our own. And left alone, we'll be overcome by shame because shame lies to us. And we need people around us who counteract the lies of shame with truth. I want to challenge you to ask God for friends like Nathan. Third, I want to challenge you to own your sin and seek God's forgiveness. Own your sin and seek God's forgiveness. You cannot become free from shame if you won't own the sin that's causing the shame. Some of us, we feel the power of shame, but the way to overcome that is you have to face the sin underneath that. So that's why I've spoken as much in this sermon about shame as I have sin, because you could try to manage the shame, but if you don't deal with the sin, the shame is just going to keep coming back. You have to own the sin and seek God's forgiveness. This morning, some of you, what you need to do is you need to come and experience the forgiveness of Jesus for the very first time. Because his forgiveness is greater than your sin. And then number four, I think we all need to discern the difference between God's voice and the voice of shame. We need to get to know the difference between God's voice and the voice of shame. When you leave today, there's going to be a handout on some uh, round tables in the lobby. They look like this. And I'm going to give you the chart here on the screen. I encourage you to grab one as you leave. But here's the difference between God's voice and my shame. God's voice stills me, it leads me, he reassures me, enlightens me, encourages me, comforts me, calms me, and convicts me. But when I hear shame in my head, shame rushes me, pushes me, frightens me, confuses me, discourages me, worries me, obsesses me, and condemns me. See, God will convict you. And I hope some of you are uncomfortable today because that's what conviction does. But God's voice never condemns you. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'd encourage you to take this copy when you go home and and put it up somewhere where you can see it. So you can get to know the difference between God's voice and shame because if you want to live a thriving life with God, the one thing that's going to hold you back is shame. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the reminder that David gives us We thank you for the fact that the the people who are after your own heart in the scriptures are not perfect, plastic, pristine people, but they're broken, flawed people just like us, which gives us hope that, that you can use us and that you do love us and that we are worthy of love and belonging because if David could make these kinds of sins and turn from them with genuine confession and repentance and if you could forgive him and restore him and create in him a clean heart then that same thing can happen in us God I believe that there are men and women in this room today who need to have a life changing encounter with you who need to experience your forgiveness for the very first time who need to experience your steadfast love your abundant mercy and your grace So I pray this morning as we get ready to sing this song that they would come forward and pray with one of our prayer partners. There are others in this room that have experienced a life-changing encounter with you, but shame has been defeating them day after day after day. They've been buying into the lie that they are unworthy of love and belonging, and we pray, God, that you would conquer their shame today. That they wouldn't just keep struggling with it, 
but that they would defeat it because you've defeated their sin and their shame on the cross. God, you don't call us to just live with the thing you defeated on the cross. You call us to claim that victory. And so we pray that we would discover a new level in our life with you as you set us free from shame. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.